We the Peace is a podcast sponsored by PAX, dedicated to helping Christian leaders bring peacemaking and justice into our organizations. We explore how peacemaking, activism, and the justice of God are central to discipleship. We publish teachings for leaders, resources for learners, and host interviews with frontline faith leaders about various topics. Our aim is to love the church, and we want to help you become the peace of Jesus wherever you are. Welcome everyone, my name is Josh. I'm the host of We The Peace. And in this season, we are exploring what it means to have a Jesus-centered theology. We have been learning that for our theology to be Jesus-centered, we must adopt a global theology, being willing to learn from other theologies from around the world, not just Western theologies or German or Swedish or Dutch theology, but rather we are to learn from theologies from all over the world to understand the global heart of our Savior and how the image of God is reflecting through the nations. I am so excited that we have a special guest, a doctor, pastor, African Dr. Katangole. Thank you so much for being here. It's an honor to have you. I'd love for you to share a little bit about yourself. Well, thank you very much, Josh, for having me. It is indeed an honor, pleasure for me to be on your show and to, to be part of the great work that you are doing for, for the kingdom. My name is our Father Emmanuel Katongole. Uh, I am a Catholic priest uh, from Uganda, uh, but for uh, eight years now, I'm teaching here at the University of Notre Dame. And before that, I taught for 12 years at Duke University, Duke Divinity School, where I was also part of the project, the initiative of founding a center for reconciliation. And so it's indeed a joy for me to to be here. But I guess one way to introduce myself uh, is to name clearly the intersections at which my life lies. So more recently, I've come to describe myself using three Ps. I'm a priest, I'm a professor, and I'm a pedigree. As a priest, as I said, a Catholic priest, ordained for the Archdiocese of Kampala in Uganda. And and so deep down, that's a vocation, that's a calling. Uh, So I bring a kind of priestly, pastoral sensibility to whatever I do. Yeah. Two, I'm a professor. Uh, professor of Theology and International Peace Studies here at the University of Notre Dame. And before that, for 12 years, a professor at Duke Divinity School, uh, teaching in the area of world Christianity. And I'm a pilgrim. I find myself at so many intersections. That means journey and traveling is a part of my life connecting different intersections of my life. My life is one never simple whole, but it's kind of made of many fragments that I try to live through and connect. As I said, I'm a priest, a professor, and a pilgrim. Those are all the intersections. Mm. But also I'm from Uganda, Africa, but I live in the U.S., so I'm both African, I guess, and uh, American. 
I am both a scholar, an academician, but also a practitioner. I spend a lot of time on the ground now, more recently working with Bethany Land Institute with the rural communities in Uganda. Also, for a number of years, working with the leaders in reconciliation, at the same time doing research and writing. So, both a scholar and a practitioner. I have so many other intersections in which I live my, my, my life. Even here at Notre Dame, I am yeah. both a theologian and part of the team of faculty, scholars, for international peace studies. So I, I, uh, I, I belong to two schools. That means my life is always kind of crossing boundaries. Yeah. So whatever that we might talk about here, Josh, the whole notion of crossing boundaries is very, very important to me. I have learned through this biograph of mine what it means to be a pilgrim and what it means when we are told that we Christians are pilgrims, that we are always in the business of crossing boundaries with no place that we can call really, really home, Mm. except our homeland in heaven. But that also means that part of our identity as Christian, or at least for me, part of my identity is a confused identity. I'm neither totally Ugandan nor totally American. I'm neither uh, totally an academician or totally a practitioner. I'm both. Mm. So I've moved from the point of being either or to the point of both and, uh, that sense of intersection. That means the question of identity for me is very, very important and how Christian identity is inviting us into this kind of confused identity. Yeah. Out of this personal journey, I have learned that to be invited to be a Christian is to be invited to into a, a crisis, is, is to be thrown into an identity crisis, where the question of who am I, who are my people, is never settled once for all. Mm. It's a question that is ongoing. And then when that one that we have to negotiate at the intersections of many uh, fragments. And, and that's where, for me, is the beauty of Christian life. Yeah. That is what we are invited to be as Christian, neither black nor white, Jew or Gentile, uh, American or African, but something new. For me, Christian life is about that birth of something new yeah. into the world to the extent that we kind of settle down into just this one identity, whether white or West or American, we've lost it. Mm. So this part of this has been colored or shaped by my own biography. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. And, and that's so much of the reason why we're honored to have you on this podcast, because you talk about this intersection and so much of what we're discussing is the theological intersections. And what does it look like to develop a global theology where it's not simply out of one place of the world judging the rest. I would love to ask you on your theological journey as you came to faith and as you were discovering what theology is, um, what was that like for you discovering that that Christianity and uh, theology was global? Did you learn that Christianity was the white man's reformed religion? Did you Knew right? Did you know right away that it was global and Eastern and distinctly Jewish? What was some of your story in understanding the global nature of Christianity? 
Well, part of it, the question that you're raising, Josh, speaks to kind of an academic journey, but part of it and the greater part of it speaks to the journey of faith. In terms of the journey of faith, growing up in a Christian home, my parents were Christian. My father became Christian as an adult. And for him to become a Christian, it was because it was one of the conditions to get married to my mother. Mm. So he didn't think it was a big deal. <laughs> yeah. A little price yeah. to pay for this beautiful bride. Yeah. But once he became Christian, he took this thing very, very seriously. And okay. so we grew up in this kind of evangelical Catholic home where Christianity matters. Mm. But what I remember that was fascinating growing up for me about Christianity was really the story and stories, whether it was the stories of the saints or whether the stories of Uganda martyrs, people like Kizito, a young boy who was killed, or whether it was stories from the Bible of Jesus, of the apostles, of Mary. I think the whole story of God, a God who loves each and everyone and the whole world to the point of shedding God's blood. You know, when I think about it, for example, Christianity came into Uganda in 1879. Uh, six years into uh, the evangelization of Uganda, we find a number of young people laying down their lives because the king had told them to abandon Christianity, and they said no. Yeah, I keep wondering, every time I go to the shrine of the Uganda martyrs, I keep wondering, what was it that came into the mind of these young people that they are so willing to die for their faith? The more I think about it, the more I realize that it was the story, the story that they heard, the story that was transmitted by the missionaries. It was not so much the logic. It was not much the system. Mm. It was the story about a God who in the beginning created heaven and earth, and you know how Africans love stories. That story must have been so well told that all these young men and women were glued down listening to this story of a God who appointed uh, particular people called Israel and at a given time sent his son to die on the cross and now has a claim to each one of life. The story must have been so beautifully told that it captured the imagination but also the passion and the loyalty and the commitment of these young people so that when Shov came to push they're saying that we are dying for that story yeah they didn't think about it as a kind of a western story or Jewish story mm. or eastern this is Josh. This is this is you, the academician, kind of trying to confuse. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What they had was a beautiful story uh, that really captured them. Yeah. So in a way, how do we even go back to that sense of Christianity as a powerful story, as a beautiful story, as a true story that this is the very nature of things that yeah. the world in which we live is created by a loving God who so loves the world that he is willing to give everything for the world. Mm. And that kind of uh, drawn up into that. The more one gets drawn up into that, into that, the more he realizes that this is beyond me. 
This is beyond Uganda. This is beyond Africa. This this is this is global. The problem, the China that we have had, we have taken this story, compartmentalized it, and tried to own it, to to kind of make it our own and package it within our cultural dimension and say this is it. Yeah. Uh, but but Christianity as a story is always spilling out, crossing all these boundaries of culture. It is a huge story that is beyond any cultural boundaries. Yeah. Uh, and so, if we are open enough to see that dynamism, we'll be open. We'll be willing to release that story so that it can play out. So that it's not culture that contains the story. Yeah. It is the story that contains culture. This I learned later on to kind of frame it like that. But at the basis of it was for me the power of the story that still keeps me yeah. within the household of God, within the household called Christianity. It's not because it is either a Western story or an African story, an Oriental story. And so it is the story of God. Of course, then I come to learn as a professor of Christianity that different people are found at different places, different cultural uh, times and so forth. And they try to get a glimpse of that story and, uh, and so in the the process, then express it using their cultural idiom. Yeah. Uh, but let's not let's not get hung up, be so hung up on the cultural idiom. It, it is a, a way to, to to express to receive this all-encompassing and powerful story. Yeah. Uh, you know. Yeah. But at the basis of it is the power of the story. I love that. Thank you so much, Doctor, for sharing that. One one thing we're learning this season also is that all theology is contextual, that um, everywhere in the world there is our understanding of God, like you talked about the cultural uh, nature of the stories that we tell that, that come to life and create theology. What, what are some of the pressing contextual issues facing African theologians or East African theologians? What are the questions that they're asking as they come to the Bible? Well, as it comes to the Bible, uh, early on, the question, especially in the 50s and the 60s, uh, was the, the whole question of the cultural idiom. Does our way of expressing, of receiving God, have any place in this story? That's what gave rise to these stories and uh, these theologies of inculturation, to realize that God, in a way, expresses himself or herself in so many cultural idioms that even for Africans, we are able to hear God in our own language. In mm. other words, we don't necessarily have to hear God in English or Latin or French. We can hear God speaking. Mm. So that people like Lamina Sani make the argument that it's not so much the missionaries that brought God to Africa. It is God that brought the missionaries to Africa. Mm. And so God was already there, in a way, welcoming uh, the, 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 the missionaries. But that question of culture, how do we express ourselves? How do we live within our own culture at the same time as children of God? Really was a key question, especially in the early stages of Africa's um, theological awakening. More and more, especially in our day and age, we, we realize that Africans, by and large, have accepted, have received uh, the biblical story, the Christian story. And so the churches are full. Uh, there's a lot of numbers going up, energy, dynamism. That's why people are now talking about the center of gravity of Christian faith 
moving southward yeah. with Africa as the new center of gravity. But while this also is going on at the same time, the, the, the social, political, economic realities of Africa are a great challenge. <laughs> the number of people, for example, experiencing uh, not just the usual forms of poverty, but really intense poverty, people wondering uh, whether they are going to even have any anything to eat. Everyday realities like that, persecution, uh, political displacement, uh, marginalization of one form or the other, the sense of not being wanted, yeah. whether from a global system. Look at, for example, what is going on in terms of the COVID crisis. Here, here in America, uh, the vaccines are available and people are even being paid to go to get a vaccine. Uh, in the rest of the world, the so-called side world, Africa and so forth, people are crying, please give us some vaccine. Yeah. Uh, the other time, one European country gave 259,000 uh, doses of vaccine and everybody was clapping and so forth and so on. So people are wondering, am I going to be alive tomorrow? The shortness of life and so forth. These are the kind of the challenges that Africans bring to the table as they receive the word of God. And so the kind of theological questions and theological answers that they are seeking, we have to respond to these urgent realities of everyday life, very pressing questions of everyday life, of sustainability, of health care, uh, or, 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 of economic well-being, and so forth and so on. Yeah. So these are the kind of questions they struggle with. And one of the things that the Africans bring to the table is the refusal, the refusal, to separate the religious from the non-religious. In the West, mostly, there's a kind of a compartmentalized approach to life. Now you're doing economics, now you're doing uh, politics, now you're doing religion. Africa will refuse to separate that. Mm. It's all one story of God and us as created. We're dealing with all this. So they want to look at everything from a religious point of view. Uh, whether it's the politics or economics. So don't just tell me that, oh, you're poor because uh, of these economic factors and so forth. I understand. But the whole reality of God has to, to respond, to be part of that uh, that conversation. Yeah. Uh, the, the other thing that uh, um, the Africans bring to the table in terms of engaging these questions is the whole question, again, of refusing the kind of secularization uh, that, that kind of limits God within just one particular sphere. Yeah. Everything from an African point of view is infused by the sense of sacredness. So we bring that kind of whole dynamism to uh, to the table. The other thing that we bring to the table is a sense of joy, a sense of expressiveness, a sense of uh, celebration, a sense of community, uh, and a sense of the lived experience of hope uh, that Yes, is working through these different challenges, but what we find in Africa is hopeful communities, hope, hopeful sentiments that, in spite of all that is going on, people still have strong hope. That's why, yeah. to an ordinary visitor, they are surprised that with all the things that are going on in Africa, how come that the Africans are still happy, they're still living, they still have a sense of joy? It is that kind of underlying sense of hope that kind of allows us uh, to retain that sense of joy, that sense of hope in the midst of so many challenges. So these are some kind of distinctive elements that I see that infuse, if you like, any theological articulations yeah. from the African continent. Wow. 
You touched on so many important things about not separating the secular sacred divide that doesn't exist, the holistic understanding of life, not separating economics from religion, from family, and that we view all those things together. Joy and hope being key markers of the lived experience of Christians who suffer. Those are really powerful. A question for you, doctor, what does the church in the West have to learn from the African church? Because you talk about your intersectionality and your intersections between the West and being a professor at Notre Dame here in South Bend and also being a priest and being Ugandan. And you are a bridge to these two realities, both as a practitioner and as a theologian. And that's the beauty of your work and your voice and your your witness. So knowing African theology and East African and having developed some African theology, what are some things that we need to be learning in the West from what you and your people have developed? Well, I think there's quite a lot, maybe two ways to uh, get to, to the, this question. First of all, I think this sort of gifts that I've brought that Africans that bring to the table uh, is so is so important for the church in the West as well. Uh, a church that uh, uh, at times lives in so much plenty that they don't even see hope. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's too much plenty that we don't see hope. Too much light blinds. Mm. Uh, so we, we, we need the church in Africa in a way, to remind us of the whole purpose of living, to praise and honor God. We need the church in Africa in a way to remind us that in spite of the many Fridays that we are going through, Easter is around the corner. Mm. So that is the, actually the very nature of our faith. Uh, faith is described in the letter of the Hebrews as the evidence of things unseen. And within the communities that we encounter in Africa, with all the challenges and so forth, you can feel a little bit of that kind of seeing of the unseen in the exuberance, in the singing of the hymns and so forth. They, they are glimpsing already something. We, we, t- we tend to forget that. Uh, in the preoccupation of, 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 of getting more, in the very fast-paced nature of, of life here, but also in the kind of optimism that has become a kind of cultural pattern in the U.S., in the West. By, by optimism, I mean it is the sense that everything depends on us, and if we think well enough, if we design our programs well enough and our technology we'll be able to overcome each and all, all these kind of challenges. Mm. Uh, and so we, not never, we, we can never be, uh, we, we can never fail in a way. That sense of kind of optimis, optimism, that kind of uh, is almost connected to a sense of self-sufficiency. So all these are kind of gifts that kind of come from the church in Africa. But even more interestingly, it's not so, so much what the church in the West have learned from the church in Africa. That is still too compartmentalized for me. Mm. The church, God's church is one church. We are all members of this household of God. How do we recover that sense of belonging together? Instead of, oh, 
it is a church in Africa, and we can learn a few things from the church in Africa, and we bring to our own church here and the church in Africa. This is still the same kind of tribalism okay. uh, that we're talking about, Josh. Mm. That you have your church there, and we have our church here. These are Africans, and these are the Western people, and these are black, ray, and so forth. And these are this is an interesting to me from a theological point of view. Mm. This is still too tribal framework of thinking. It is the only church of God. And as St. Paul says, we are members of this household. The letter to the Ephesians is a very powerful text where Paul celebrates the coming together of we who were so far apart, Mm. Greeks and Gentiles, Jews and Greeks, eating together for the very first time, realizing something of a new community, the full heights of Christ's full stature. That's that's what this is all about. That's what the journey should be about. It's not just one church learning from the other. How do we learn to come together? Mm. As one of the theologians says also, the greatest uh, challenge uh, the rest of the world teaches us or the poor teaches us uh, or the handicapped is not so much that we can do things for them or we can learn from them, but can we learn to sit at the same table? Mm. Can we at least imaginatively see ourselves that this is us, this is our church? Yeah. Unless we're able to break that imaginative barrier, we've got to kind of remain caught up in the kind of tribalism where these these notions of whether America or Africa, the West, uh, Oriental, Africa, become so rigid. Uh, But from my own point of view, they are theologically uninteresting. The whole purpose is how do we journey together so that together we might discover what it means to be children of God within the same household, yeah. where there are many rooms in that in that household. Mm. Uh, for me, that's a, that's that, that, that's that's a bit. And so, how do we find opportunities for mm. us, Western, uh, non-West, African, America, uh, black and white, to come together, to eat together, to so that we can experience part of that kind of Ephesian moment of coming together, breaking down the walls, then we'd be journeying together. The, the whole invitation for the church is to be on that journey. That's why the church is called a pilgrim people. So if I'm understanding you correctly, in order to journey together, you're talking about time spent in each other's homes. You're talking about sharing meals together. You're talking about those experiences as... Friendships. Friendships. Across divides. Time-wasting activities, you're right, yeah. Mm. That we discover the kind of commonality that we have together. Uh, And that the the things that we have together are far deeper than the things that separate us. Mm. That's profound. And and speaking to tribalism, you wrote a powerful and beautiful book called Mirror to the Church. And those of you who are listening, uh, please go pick it up if you don't have it already, where you reflect theologically on the Rwandan genocide, and you discuss how tribalism in our world leads to violence and how our social or political tribes can end up overriding the unity we're supposed to have as the church. And you write, quote, Christian expression 
throughout the world has too easily allowed the blood of tribalism to flow deeper than the waters of baptism. And we're reading this in the year 2021, where there was recently an attack on the Capitol, where a bunch of Republican white so-called Christians marched and attacked as a tribe on the nation's capital. I would love to hear your thoughts on what you're seeing in America and what tribalism looks like from from your perspective. Well, I, I think I said most of it actually in middle of the church. But just one of the things that really surprised me about Rwanda, and I try to, to capture that in middle of the church, is how does a nation that is so Christian, mm. over 85% Christian, how does a nation that is so deeply Christian like that turn against one another, Christians killing Christians uh, in the name of Hutu and Tutsi? Mm. What happened? How, how, how could that be possible in this Christian nation? Uh, one of the things that uh, I learned from Rwanda and that I tried to write about is, you know, Politics matters. We Christians need to learn to take politics and political formation seriously. Mm. So what I do in that book is kind of try to give a sense of the political history and the kind of political formations that made Rwanda. And part of that was the imagination of tribe, Hutu and Tusi, as two separate communities in a way that he then succeeded in actually making them two separate communities. So that by 1984, Hutu and Tusi were indeed divided uh, as two communities that hated each other. Then the rest is predictable. But this is all the work of politics. Politics forms us. Politics forms us to see the world in a particular way. Forms the politics forms us to define our loyalties, either in or out, either you belong or you don't belong. And politics eventually claims us to say you are only mine. You can't belong to anything else. Wow. So there is an insidious kind of formation that's going on in terms of politics. Whether it is a politics of Rwanda, whether it's a politics of Uganda, whether it is a politics of the US, especially the politics of the U.S., eventually, in a way, to come to a sense that we American citizens come to define ourselves as American Christian. The Christian is kind of a whisper. But the big self-definition is we are American. Mm. That means that we have embodied all this kind of formation, and we don't even see that there is anything perhaps, uh, in a way, insidious about it at least from a Christian point of view. We tend to think, oh, that it fits very nicely within the Christian story. Many times it does not. Because the Christian story, simply put, is about a God who is so loving, who is self-giving, who in a way uh, dispatches himself for the life of the world, who gives himself for the life of the world, the state of politics on many levels is about kind of building up resources. It's about self-aggrandizement in a way. Mm. Such that even small nations like Rwanda and Uganda are born with the soul of an empire like America. 
So given a chance, they would do exactly what America does. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so that, but that story is not the same story as the story of a self-giving God who goes out, especially for the weak, the poor, the widow, the orphan. Mm. It, it runs counter to, to, to that. So the deeper that we are formed in this story called America, the more we see the accumulation of resources, the accumulation of power, the accumulation of me as a good thing. We don't even see that there's anything wrong with it. Yeah. And so if that is the underlying story that we live and tell ourselves, Christianity then becomes a kind of a vanish <laughs> onto, onto that story. And so how do we learn to take politics seriously and political formation seriously? And how do we even become suspicious mm. of political formation? Part of the primary challenge, the primary invitation for Christians is to be suspicious about all these claims of salvation. Mm. And uh, American politics, for example, claims that America is going to save us. <laughs> that if you have the American passport, you are, you are safe. <laughs> you, you, you see? Yeah. Uh, so, I, I think that the work, the theological work, the, the Christian work is, is the work of negotiation. We always find ourselves as citizens of different countries, one or the other, America or whatever. We always have one passport or the other, you see? So yeah. it's not that we can live without, with, with a total disregard to the, the politics. That's not what I mean. We always find ourselves, you know, whether we like it or not, located in a given place, time, space, geography, Okay. The question is, how do we learn to negotiate these loyalties vis-a-vis this primary loyalty and story of the self-giving God who has claimed us, his children and members of his household? So this is the kind of the ongoing uh, negotiation that is underway. That is why I've I've learned, and I I think this is for me the most powerful sentence in Mirror to the Church. I forget the page, whether it's 65 or when I say the mission of the church is not to make America more Christian. It's not to make Rwanda more Christian or Uganda more Christian. The mission of the church is to make American Christians less American. Wow. Rwandan Christians less Rwanda. Wow. So that together, then we can realize what journey God is inviting us on. But that is the work of negotiating these kind of Loyalties, you know what I mean? Yeah. But that's for me the most powerful sentence in the book, that okay. the mission of the church is not to make America more Christian, it's to make American Christians less American. So that we can attain this unity, this cross-cultural so get-togetherness. So then you have le- less American Christians, with less Rwandan Christians, with less uh, Afghan Christian, with less whatever, coming together, not coming yeah. in the sense of coming together. Amen. So together we can create something of a new reality in the world. This is a new social reality that's called the church Yeah, that God is giving as a gift to the world. It's beautiful with their highest loyalty to King Jesus and the household of faith to where we wouldn't let nations get in between um, the unity that God is calling us to. That's so beautifully articulated. Thank you for that. You wrote another book called Born of Lament, The Theology and Politics of Hope in Africa. And earlier on in this interview, you spoke to Hope being um, a part of the theological formation that comes out of 
the East African experience. You mentioned nonviolence a little bit on page 263 near the end of the book, quote, at a time when the church's own witness to God's nonviolent peace seems to wane and grow faint, the African church's witness of hope can reinvigorate and rekindle the global church's mission as a sacrament of peace in the world. And I love how you you framed that and you talked about the the church's witness to nonviolent peace. And that's a part of the theology that we should adopt no matter what nation we're in. This should be a global theology. Please explain that a little bit for for us. What do you mean by this nonviolent global peace and why is it so important? Part of it is the, what I take to be the inner logic of this story. And again, we come back to story. You see how story is so important. The story. Let's not let's let's demystify. Yeah. Anything called religion, Christianity. Let's say it's the story of God. Mm. And what do we? What have we as Christians learned about the story of God? Hey, God, who in the beginning created heaven and earth. What we have learned is that. God so loved the world that in the beginning, in the end, he sent his own son. So what we have learned is this story of a self-giving God. Mm -hmm. A God, as Paul says, who from the very start has been reconciling the whole world to himself. That's the the, the whole movement of scripture from the very beginning, Genesis to Revelation. So Paul summarizes very well for us. God has been reconciling. Reconciliation is that movement of God throughout that brings us to the parousia, okay? So, but if you want to look more deeply at that story, how does God do it? Paul tells us in this text of 2 Corinthians that he does so by this notion of reconciliation. He who was sinless accepted to take on our own sins. He's reconciled us to himself, although he was sinless. So the victim, in a way, sought us out, one who had arranged that, and destroyed the enmity that we had established. And all that is done out of love. So what do you see in this whole movement? Is God non-violent way of reconciling the world, not by force, mm not by law, by grace, gratuity, freedom given. Okay? That's what gratuity means. That's what grace means. Freedom given. So, and we see that kind of pattern that has come to a climax in the person, life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now continues throughout the world, through the ministry of the church. But how God does it, it's a nonviolent way. Mm. Uh, so nonviolence is integral, is at the heart of this way of God, if you like, of reconciling the whole world to himself, where everything in heaven and earth, above and below, as St. Paul says, has now been reconciled to God. Nonviolence is an inevitable, essential, inherent, inner logic of that movement. And so the more you think about it, the more you realize that uh, even when scripture talks about 
violence in the Old Testament, that that is a movement that is moving towards the climax. Mm. It's a kind of an educational journey until we have seen the fullness of God in Christ. Amen. So nonviolence in a way. I can't say enough about nonviolence as integral to that. And so if the church is going to continue as the sacrament of that story, mm. sacrament means both a sign and a reality. From a Catholic point of view, sacrament is that which is both a sign. It's not the full thing. Yeah. But it's also a reality. It creates that very which it points to. Mm. But it's not the whole thing. Okay, the church is what is the sacrament of this God's reconciling love. Yeah, it points to it, but also it makes it completely visible in the world. Okay, if the church has to be living to its mission, it has to live into this non-violent way of reconciling the world. Yeah. Now that wins when we assume the sort of the nations as primary and so forth, because the way that the world deals with the conflict is force by force, okay? Yeah. So the witness of the church, in a way, is how do we bear witness to this other way? And the stories that I tell in Born from Lament shows all these kind of Christians caught in these very difficult circumstances of war, of violence, in a way, bearing witness to another way. Another form of politics, an unvaried form of politics. That's what I'm saying that we can learn from these Christians, from these stories, how it means to be in the world as a sign and a sacrament of God's deconciding word, uh, love in the, in, in the world. So that, that's, that's basically what I'm trying to do. And I try to do it by displaying through stories, thick stories, with yeah. a theological argument about this uh, alternative, different way of yeah. living into the world. That's beautiful. And uh, for those of you listening, the book is Born of Lament, The Theology and Politics of Hope in Africa. And the other one that we referenced was Mirror to the Church. And for those who are looking to get a taste of thinking about faith through an East African perspective, and even considering what is tribalism and what is the problem with tribalism and the problem with the Republican and Democratic Party and what happens here in America, it, is, it, it truly is a mirror to the church around the world, but a mirror to the church in the West and an indictment on how we can be more American than Christian, as Dr. Katongole just mentioned to us. Landing the plane, uh, two last questions. Practically speaking, and you already touched on some of this as far as sharing meals together and time spent and uh, uh, the cross-pollination that should happen as citizens of the kingdom cross-culturally to learn. You know, what are some practical things that local leaders in churches can do to begin to think and act globally? What are some practical things that people, if they're not going to read a theology book, they're not going to be interested in that, what can they do to begin to engage God globally? Well, you know, one way to engage God globally is to engage God locally. Mm. That's what what made flesh means. That's what the incarnation means. That 
within, by taking the incarnation seriously, we can discover within this particular place, within this particular location, all things, everything that we imagine to be global. Mm. So the global is not just a kind of a movement away from the local and to that kind of space called global is already contained within the, the local. Uh, one of the things that I can immediately think about is wherever we find ourselves, how do we engage this movement of God's self-sacrificing love? Mm. It's a movement. It's a moving from the Godhead into the world and to the peripheries. As the letter of the Philippians says, although he was in the very nature of God, he did not uh, cling to that equality. He emptied himself, becoming one of us, becoming a self. He's always kind of going to the margins. Uh, people like John Parkins, the founder of the CCDA, Christian Committee Development of America, calls it a relocation. Yeah. That the whole movement of God is about relocating, kind of living wherever one is and finding oneself in another location. I call it crossing boundaries. That the whole movement of the gospel is an invitation for us to cross boundaries, to journey, to travel, and so uh, I, I use that 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 that, that image. That even wherever one is. They need to travel from one whose comfort zone, from one whose own people, like Abraham is called upon to leave his own people, is 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 given to us. Uh, I think part of what you are doing, if I am right, is is really live out that invitation within, for example, a nation, a place that is so much. Uh, framed around race mm. and race thinking. There's no way that, for example, we can overcome race just by thinking about uh, these categories and so forth. Race is overcome by eating together, by coming together, black and white, brown, forming communities at the local level that kind of exemplify that coming of together, that that eating together in very concrete con- concrete ways, uh, that that encourage friendships, unlike a friendship between strangers, uh, that, that that eventually even encourages, for example, intimacy between uh, between races, between uh, to create something of of a new new friendships. Yeah, and I don't think for that you need to go beyond any particular place, South Bend or anywhere. Wherever one is, that's where the work of the church is. And that kind of boundary crossing has many opportunities at any given place. So beginning where one is, is the way to go. That's beautiful. Thank you for that. And very last question, and thank you so much for your time. This is very broad, and we ask everybody this question on the show. What is key to peace in the 21st century? The key to peace in the 21st century. Wow. Yeah, this is a kind of question that many people would like to write a, a book about, and then this is how to make world peace, and then you sell so many copies and become a millionaire. <laughs> and, it, and, and, and it doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah. The key to peace, to world peace, is right behind you. I, I see those posters that you have, Oscar Romero, uh, Fanelou, and uh, yeah. The key to peace is what do we learn from all these people? As a theologian, as a Christian, I see them as exemplifications mm. of the story of God in a particular place, in a particular location. They're a glimpse of that story of God's love. So the key to peace in the world is the story of God's love, God's mm. self-giving love. 
that first of all, we receive, we receive. It has to begin by receiving it. St. Paul says, oh, this is a gift from God. Unless we have received it, let's not become peacemakers or claim to be. We'll be very, very dangerous activists. We have to receive that gift of peace, Mm. that gift of God's love. And then receiving it, it is what actually impels us to, in a way, try as much as possible to duplicate it, to advocate for it in particular places, just like as those witnesses are. And that is how God saves the world. That is the key to peace. Uh, beginning uh, from Bethlehem, Nazareth, to the ends of the world. Kind of a slow process, kind of beginning in the backwaters, uh, beginning where you are. So let's not think about some of this, kind of, this kind of grand theory. It's not even state department. It is where Josh is mm. in the story of the local community called the church, uh, where that love of God passes, where that love of God is in a way received, but also is allowed to transform the everyday ways of interaction around us. That, I believe, is the key to world peace. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Doctor, for taking the time and, and being with us. It's been rich and a blessing, and I'll be thinking about the many things you said over the coming weeks. Thank you for your patience also in scheduling as you've been traveling back and forth and <laughs> continue to pray for safety and travels amidst uh, the pandemic and blessings. Blessings. Thanks very much, Josh. I really appreciate it. And uh, uh, we look forward to more interactions. So it's been a pleasure talking to you and greetings to everyone in your audience. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast, We the Peace. You can find more resources at madeforpax.org and you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at PAX. This is We the Peace.